Um, I'm Pastor Jeremy Bannister. For those of you who know me uh, and those of you who don't know me, I'm still Pastor Jeremy Bannister. Um, I want to address the elephant in the room for those of you who know me. Um, I am wearing a Seahawks jersey today. And one of the things that you guys don't realize is that Sam and Lisa were gracious enough to give me and Shannon Seahawks jerseys to wear for the bonfire afterwards where you can discard all of your Seahawks jersey and we're going to burn them in the fire. So... Um, I'm just kidding. No, just a fun thing that I do with everybody. My team's the Falcons. I always just make jersey bets with people, and I love seeing them in my jerseys. They love me, seeing me in their jerseys. And um, unfortunately, you know, when we left on Sunday, we Sam and I were talking. Got to his car. He's about to leave. We look at the score. It's 14 to 12. I left 10 minutes later. It was 28 to 12, and my Falcons had no chance at that point. It was, it was terrible. And so I am paying off my bet. God humbles me through my football addiction. So just wanted you to know that. My confession to you. We're not all perfect. All right, so we are getting to start Esther today. How many of you read this week and got to read the first five chapters? It's awesome because... Um, Esther is one of the more well-known books of the Old Testament. We, we, many of us understand and know the story of Esther. Maybe we're too familiar with stories. Because sometimes when you're familiar with a story uh, that's in the Scripture, that we overlook certain things that are staring us right in the face, and yet at the same time, something we've never really considered before. And I hope to open some of that out as we look at the first half of Esther today in a, a sermon titled, Uniquely Equipped. And just to give an overview for those of you who are, are here for the first time, and, and we're going through a series, one of the things that we're doing at Heights is we're going through the Bible in five years. And we're a little over halfway past that point right now. And so we have booklets that are out there. We also have bookmarks that have the readings that we're doing because we read six days a week together as a congregation. And the sermons that Pastor Mark, myself, or whoever else is up here uh, shares comes from what we've read during the week to give us a deeper and fuller understanding of the Word of God. Um, so what we did this week is we read the first five chapters of Esther, and it begins like this. We have a queen, Veshti, who is there uh, among the Medes and the Persians, and we have King Xerxes who's there, who is her husband at the time. And they're having these festivities, long-winded festivities over his kingdom for six months. And during that time, she also is having festivities. They have a seven-day feast that's happening in the midst of this. And King Xerxes wants to have Queen Veshti to come to him. And she says, no. And that doesn't bode well for Queen Veshti because Queen Veshti is then divested of her queenship. Because it was seen as a great offense. Not only was it a great offense, but an edict went out into the land that this was to be an example that men were supposed to be leaders in their own household and women were supposed to listen to them. And if they did not listen to them, then something similar. So they had this edict that went through there all because of this disobedience of the king's command. And so she's divested of her queenship and a new queen is looked to be in her place. So that's where we get in chapter 2. Chapter 2, they find Esther. And Esther is a Jew. And Esther has been raised by Mordecai, her cousin. And it's an older cousin. And so he has raised her, but has told her to keep her ancestry secret. Don't tell anybody you're a Jew. You have to remember, the Medes and the Persians took over from Babylon. They took over from the Babylonian kingdom. And Babylon, when they conquered areas, not just conquering Jerusalem, but in all areas, they brought people back from those areas. Okay? And so Jews were oftentimes looked at with derision among the other people that were brought into that place. And so the idea of keeping her identity and her heritage secret was very, very important, at least in this family value, okay? At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai, who works within the, the council of the, of the king in some capacity as a scribe, finds out about a uh, plot to assassinate the king, and he exposes it. 
And in exposing that, the two people who were plotting against the king were then taken care of. They were killed. Okay, which leads us into chapter 3, and we get the introduction of a different man. In verse 1, it says this, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Amathada, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So he's an Agagite. We read in the next few verses that Mordecai would not bow down to him as a person of honor. And to understand the reason why is to understand the history of that name Agagite. That the history of that name goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God has told Saul to go and wipe out these people, the Amalekites. And in doing so, he captures the king who is named Agag. And he doesn't put him to death immediately. As a matter of fact, this is one of the strikes against Saul that he doesn't put him to death immediately. And the kingdom is going to be transferred over to David. But there was animosity against the Amalekites who were part of the people of of Canaan that the Israelites were supposed to overthrow. And the people of Israel who were coming in to be given this land and having these people judged by God because of their sinfulness for 400 years. And so there's bad blood between these two that spans centuries. And so Mordecai, knowing that he is an Agagite, somebody who is a descendant of this king who had animosity toward Israel, did not want to pay him homage. At the same time, as Haman finds out about him, we look in verse 6, it says, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of, kill, of, of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now, we see that animosity reciprocated both ways, don't we? At first, Mordecai doesn't want to just pay homage to him. He doesn't do any harm to him. He just says, I'm not bowing. I'm not giving you the respect. I'm not doing anything that shows you honor because I don't think you're an, you have an honorable heritage and you're not an honorable person. Mordecai takes an offense to this, not so much that he takes an offense to himself from Mordecai, but when he finds out that he's a Jew because of this heritage, he not only wants to punish Mordecai, but now he wants to wipe out all of Mordecai's people. Because we have a historic background of animosity from two conquered peoples who find themselves in the service of the Medes and the Persians. And it's interesting because sometimes we read the Bible and we think, oh, isn't it convenient? Only the Jews are promoted into all these areas. It's not true. We see Haman promoted in this area, right? And he's not a Jew. So what we see is that all these peoples have assimilated into the Mede and Persian culture while while keeping their own cultural understanding themselves. And he holds it in such high regard that he's willing to say, I want to find a way to wipe out the Jewish people. And this is where this edict comes from. And sometimes we don't think about the background of these things. We just think that Haman's a bad person, right? Right? And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say he's not. But there's reasons behind the reasons that he has these machinations, if you will, against the Jewish people. So let's read uh, a good portion of chapter 3, and then we're going to read all of chapter 4 together. It says, in the twelfth year, in verse 7, of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast their pur, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. 
If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the son of Amadelthia, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned, and they wrote out the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors, and the various provinces and nobles of the various people. And these were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So a couple things to note here. One of the things is that uh, um, the passage of Scripture that talks about Haman offering up 10,000 talents. Obviously, Haman's a very rich man. This would be millions of dollars if we put it in American money, okay? The idea, he's a very rich man. I'm willing to put millions of dollars forward from my own account for the extermination of the Jews. Now, in verse 11, it says, keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. This is probably not the right translation of this phrase, but rather it means it's your money, do what you want with it, and the people as you please. Okay? And we understand that when we get to chapter 4, I'll have you guys look at verse 7, which talks about how much money Haman is putting forth. If he wasn't putting forth his own money, there would have been no mention to it whatsoever in the next chapter. So, that's one thing to think about. But when we think of this, and when we've seen, how many of you have ever watched a movie on Esther? Raise your hand. Okay? And so, if you watch the movies on Esther and the like, here's what you get. You get this idea that this edict is made, and everything is, is just about to take place, right? There, there's, there's this imminent edict that's going to happen, Right? It's been written, we've got the signet ring, and guess what's going to happen? Any day now, we're going to have this, this huge fight against the Jews, and, and we're going to have them all wiped out. Not true. Because all of this happens in the first month, but the edict isn't supposed to take place until the 12th. There's 11 months in between when the edict was made and when the edict was to be carried out. Why is that? For a number of reasons. Number one, the province is big. They wanted to get all the word out to all the different provinces. They didn't have email. Nor carrier pigeon. Nor anything else that, that would be of quickness. And the, ex, the expanse of the Mede and Persian Empire was vast. At least from the standpoint of us traveling to all the different districts to give them this information. Secondly, you have millions of dollars being dispersed. So this is a coordinated effort that's not just a spur-of-the-moment thing, just saying, hey, go grab a sickle someplace and slaughter your neighbor that's a Jew. This is a coordinated effort. This is taking time to make sure everything is arranged exactly as it's supposed to be. And it's been given the signet ring of the king at that time. Sometimes... When we look at this, we kind of think that it's happening the next day. Oh my goodness, if we don't take care of this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen the next day. Nope, it's 11 months. And as you continue to read, pay attention to what month you're in. And Esther, you'll be surprised to find out the, the order of events as this begins to unfold. This was a thought out, methodical plan. Not a spur of the moment, I'm flashed in anger and let's just make this happen. So we have that that's going on as well. And so with all of this planning that happens against it, this is the backdrop. Now that Esther is queen, now her life is in danger as well because she's a Jew, although hidden. Remember, she hasn't talked about her heritage for this specific reason. Because it could be used against her by those who do not like the people of Israel. 
And it's not just Agagites that might not like them. You've got the Philistines, you've got the Amorites, you've got the Moabites, you've got all of these other people who have also been displaced as well because they were conquered by Babylon and brought out there. So you understand why the idea of the hiddenness of the nature of your heritage might be important. And now it's come to the point that maybe I can't hold on to this hiddenness any longer. Which leads us to chapter 4. We're going to read it all together. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went about into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he only went so far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hadath, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to a tender, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. This is why I said back in the previous chapter, he had promised to pay it. If he was said, nope, you don't have to pay it, it wouldn't have been in there in that next chapter. He also gave a copy of the text of the edict for their their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told her, and he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with them for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king is but one law, that he must be put to death. The only exception is to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So it's interesting to note, first of all, That this interaction between Mordecai and Esther wasn't a face-to-face interaction. It's through correspondence, through a servant that was sent down. Something that we oftentimes overlook, or if we watch in the, in the shows, they, they don't have that. They have the face-to-face confrontation because it makes for a more dramatic scene, right? But that's not what happened. Esther saw him from a distance because he couldn't enter into the royal court with sackcloth and ashes on. And so as we see this taking place, Mordecai says, hey, this is what's happening and this is what's going to happen. Esther, rightfully afraid of what might happen to her because now she's stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? On the one end, if she approaches the king and the king does not receive her, she could die. And on the other end, If she doesn't approach the king and her Jewish roots are exposed, she's going to die. You ever been put between a rock and a hard place before? It's a tough place to be. 
And here's Esther trying to figure this out. And Mordecai writes to her and says, look, you might be able to keep it a secret, but don't think that just because you keep your heritage a secret in this case that you're going to be spared. And the funny thing is, we look at Esther, and Esther, many of you may know, is a place where God's name is not mentioned explicitly, but it drips all with faith, doesn't it? Prayer and fasting, sackcloth and ashes, the people who are there, and even Mordecai talking about deliverance of the Jewish people coming from another place. Where's all of that placed in? It's God. And so while he's not mentioned explicitly, he's implicitly underneath everything that we're reading within Esther, as Mordecai and Esther are talking to one another. And it's interesting, when we look at this passage of Scripture We see that famous line, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Maybe you're here for that reason, that we might be delivered. And so she says, here's what you need to do. I have made up my mind. I'm going to approach the king, but before I do, I would like for everybody to fast and pray for me for three days. And then I'm going to approach the king. And then we see chapter 5 happen. And I'm just going to give a quick overview of chapter 5. She approaches the king. She puts forth the scepter. And she's received with favor. And he asks to have, she asks to have the king and Haman come and dine with her. And they spend all the time there dining with one another. And then Esther does the most human thing. She chickens out. Can you come another night? Now that you've received me this once, can you come and do this again tomorrow? How many of you have done that? How many of you have had the opportunity maybe to share Christ with somebody, maybe to do something so important, or maybe you've had to confront on a very hard situation, and you're right there. The moment is there. Everything is laid out before you, and you're just like, How many of you have done that? I've done it. I I will admit I've done it. I mean, there couldn't be any... I've had people who have sat in front of me and almost begged me to tell them about Jesus, and I've walked away. Right? I've had opportunities in hard situations to be able to talk to somebody about that hard situation. I'm there by myself with this person to finally be able to talk with them about it. And I just, oh, I chicken out. We have a lot of different reasons, but a lot of it is stress, isn't it? That you and I have concerning these situations. Are they going to receive it right? Are they going to like me anymore? Do, are they going to disown me? Are they not going to be my friend anymore? Are they, it's going to cause strange family relations. How are they going to think? Are they going to think I'm a freak because I love Jesus? What's going to go on? And we kind of do the same thing, right? And I want to point out that what we see in Esther in this setup, that, that next week we'll, we'll hear the conclusion of all of this. But what we see in Esther in this setup is something that's very familiar to you and me. And it's very interesting that as I've been up here the last three times I've done, we've done the beginning of Ezra, we've been, done the beginning of Nehemiah, and now we're doing the beginning of Esther. And it all lines up and, and kind of culminates into this situation right here. Because Ezra reminds us that God's in control of everything, right? That he was in control of every detail. We read chapter 1 and we saw that prophecies from 150 years ago were fulfilled during that time. Not just that, but we read back in Acts chapter 17 that God had ordained exactly where you lived and exactly where I lived and the places and the times in which we were to live. 2020 may have caught all of us by surprise, but God not only knew that 2020 was going to happen, He knew which of His people would be there at that time. The second thing is we look at Nehemiah, and we look at Nehemiah in the setup of Nehemiah that he was there on a mission, and that mission was to build the wall, right? And in building that wall, he had problems both inside and outside that were trying to keep him away from that mission. 
And in the same regard, here in 2020, we have a mission that we're supposed to be doing the Great Commission and telling other people about Jesus. But guess what? We have problems inside and outside, don't we? We have problems inside because it's harder to share Jesus in 2020 than it ever has been. And we have problems outside because a lot of the people out there don't want to hear about Jesus anyway. Which brings us to Esther. Because here in the first part of this, she has been given a mission as well. Because she is feeling pressured. Because what the message she has to share is important. It's life-saving and life-changing for the Jewish people. The message that we have in Christ is the same. It is life-saving and life-changing for those who would accept Christ. And yet, guess what? Just like Esther. We're scared. Sharing that message is not easy amidst a culture that's becoming more and more aggressively against it. And we find ourselves a lot like Esther. Let's just hide the fact that we're a Christian. Maybe they won't notice. Maybe I can just kind of walk through my life and not offend anybody, right? I can, I can just hide right here and still be accepted by everyone. But we're on a mission and we have to share this message because this message is life-saving and life-changing to the ones whom, in which we share. And so Esther, in order to do this, asked for people to pray for three days so that I can do it. And even then, three days goes by, and she invites the king over, and it's still like, I'm still scared. I'm still not quite ready to share. I know I need to. I know I have to. I know I have to have that opportunity, because if I don't, something worse is going to happen to my people. I felt the same way when I was dating my wife, or before I dated my wife. As a matter of fact, um, when I was uh, working at Walmart, Walmart had been very, very good to me, um, and my wife was working at Walmart, and before we were dating, she had a boyfriend, and she both broke up with her boyfriend. And I was so excited because she had paid a lot of attention to me. And so here it was, and this is, I think, I can't remember what day it was. I want to say it was a, it was a Friday. It was a Friday night. And I'm working, and I'm just waiting for her to show up because I've been trying to wait all week to, to garner up the courage to ask her out. And so I'm working, and she's not there. I wanted her to be there in the pharmacy. She did pharmacy, so she dealt drugs, and I work in toys. Isn't that a great combination? Um, and so the, the whole idea... Of, of me seeing her on Friday. I was so looking forward to it. Well, Friday came and went, and she was not there. And it crushed me, and I was like, oh, I was going to ask her today. Uh, maybe I can ask her tomorrow. So Friday night comes, and I'm working in, in the electronics section and kind of floating around different areas as they're needing me at Walmart. And I notice that Shannon walks in with somebody else, and I'm like, there she is. I'm going to go chase her down real quick, her and a friend, and see if I can ask her out on a date. It's what I want to do. So I stalk her and her friend, which happened to be her sister, but I didn't know that at the time. And so I stalk her and her friend, and, and I'm finding her, and I finally found her, and I'm going like, I'm going to go ask her right there. And as I'm walking up to go ask her, and, and, and I've got this courage up, and I'm going to do it, we need all cash. We need all uh, available employees to the cash registers. I'm like, no, not now, not now. I ran to the front. I checked out like t- two or three people, and I did it as quick as I possibly could because I had to go find her again. So I checked them out, closed down my register, and just started running around the store like a maniac. I don't even know what it must have looked like on the security cameras. I mean, that's probably a little sketchy. Anyway, so. So I'm running around trying to find her, and I find her right as she and her friend walk out the door. (sighs) Okay. Next day comes, and it's Saturday. And she's supposed to be there at 9, but she doesn't show up because there's a funeral in her family, and she was given the day off. And in my mind, I'm like, I blew it. 
I had one chance and I blew it. How many of you feel that same way sometimes when you blow it with other people? I had that one chance and I blew it. And God was gracious to me. Four o'clock, Shannon comes back in. She wasn't expected to be there. And she comes in and I I chase her because I was leaving because I got off at four. So I was leaving and I passed her car on the way. So I turn the car around as quick as I can, get get into the parking lot, and I just make a beeline for She has to walk to the back to check in, go around and go around front. So I'm just running that path hoping I I can catch her by that time, right? And by the time I get there, she has just entered the pharmacy thing and she takes her keys and she slings them all the way across the pharmacy to where it hits that back wall. I'm like, I'm not asking her out right now. (laughs) She got other things going on in her life. But I felt like I couldn't leave because I was given the second chance. So I waited nearly two hours to finally get the courage up to go ask her out on an aisle as I knelt down. So I was wondering whether or not you would like to, you know, like go out sometime. And she's like, sure. And I'm like, yes! Uh, On the inside, on the inside. I'm trying to hold it together. I'm just like, when would you like to do that? Oh, how about tonight? Woohoo! And that's what started us going out. But I felt that tension. The same tension that I'm sure Esther is feeling. The same tension you guys feel, right? Whenever we have the opportunity to share good news, we wonder how it's going to be received. I don't want her to say no to me asking her out, which led to another asking out, and another asking out, and another asking out. All great things, right? But I had to screw up the courage to be able to do that. Esther's doing the same thing. Chapter 5, I understand. It's the most human thing in the world, right? And how is she going to overcome it? How are we supposed to overcome that when we're on a mission to share Christ to the world around us? He knows you live in 2020 amid all this COVID and whatever else is going on. None of this is a surprise. Could it be that just like Esther, you were placed where you're placed in your work in your family, in your home for such a time as this. Because God didn't make a mistake for when you were going to be born and when you were living and how you were witnessing. But it still takes some courage. We look in Acts chapter 4 to a very similar situation. Very similar to what we deal with today. And I just want to read this full account Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 8, says, And Peter, he's been arrested now and put in jail because they've been preaching Christ and healing people. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He's the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further, among the people we must warn these men to no longer, to no longer speak to anyone in this name. And then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
And after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide on how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Do you see the similarities between where they're at and where Esther was at? Esther's between a rock and a hard place. She's going to have to reveal who she is. She hasn't done it yet. But she knows she can no longer be silent. And she has to open her mouth. And what does she resort to? She says, I'm going to do it, but you need to pray for me. Because I can't do this in my own strength. Three days, three nights, don't eat anything. We're going to do the same. Pray for me that I'll have the courage to do that. And she chickens out the first night. Now we're looking at Peter and John. Remember, Peter's the one who denied Jesus three times. Now he's speaking boldly. Now they're arrested. Now he gives the good testimony. And they threaten him and they say, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. We don't want that name anymore. Just like we didn't want the heritage of the Jews to be known. And by the strength and grace of God, they said, judge and obey God because we can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. That's some great boldness right there, isn't it? And we already know that Peter ain't got that boldness. He's bold and brash, but he ain't that brave, right? He's already been put in that position before and failed. How could he stand now? We see afterwards, they come together, and what do they do? They pray. That's what they do. God, you've heard the threats against their service. You know why? Because that would scare any of us. Stop speaking in their name. You know why? Because bad things can happen to you. We can jail you. We can punish you. We can kill you. God, we need your help. If we're going to speak boldly in the name of Jesus, we're not going to be able to do it. And so they said their threats, and they said, we need to pray. And we need to be pray to be bold to deliver the message God has sent us to do. Same thing with Esther, right? Same thing that you and I are called to do as believers in Christ. But here's the funny thing. You and I are uniquely equipped. And we don't think about that as often. You and I are uniquely equipped. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Jesus is talking about people denying him and that God knows everything that's going on, right? And then he says this very interesting statement when he says this, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you're going to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you, would say, what you should say. How many times do you and I try to say, I don't know enough answers to testify to God, to my brother, to my sister, to my coworker, to this other? Do we not take this seriously that we, if we are followers in Jesus Christ, are given the Holy Spirit and this same word that was given to them are given to all followers because this is Jesus' words in that day. Don't worry about it. Because I'll give you what to say. Do you believe that God is living and active, living in you to give you those words? Well, if we're not praying about it, we're not, right? 
If we're not asking other people to pray for us and reaching out to somebody else who needs to know Jesus, well, then we're not ready, are we? We're not living in that reality, not understanding that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you and me. That doesn't mean it will be received well. No promise of that, by the way, in the Scripture. That God would say that He's going to give us the testimony doesn't mean their reaction is, oh, everybody we talk to is going to come to Jesus. Because if that were the case, Jesus would have never died on the cross, would he have? Because I guarantee you when Jesus spoke, it was the word of God, wasn't it? And yet it still cost him his life and eventually would cost the lives of every one of his disciples for holding to the name of Jesus. And here, they just got out of prison. There's no guarantee they're not going back. They didn't pray that they'd be left out of prison. God, help us that we won't be left out of prison. God, help us that we won't be harmed in any way. God, help us. No, you've heard their threats. Help us speak the word of God more boldly because it's in Jesus that the hope of the world resides. It's a message that changes the lives of the people whom we share it to. So we need help. And the beautiful thing is, God's already equipped you for it. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And he says, don't have to worry about it. When you're pressed at that moment and you feel that pressure on you, you trust God that the Holy Spirit's going to give you words to say that are of faith to the world around you to testify to the goodness and the graciousness of Jesus. You got no guarantee of their response. You got no guarantee of how they're going to react. That's not the mission. The mission is to make disciples of all nations. And I can't do that by being quiet. I can't do that by being silent. I can't do that by hiding and pretending that I'm not a Christian, or waiting till I have all knowledge to refute every argument that's out there. Jesus is giving you the Holy Spirit. That's God dwelling in you. Isn't that enough? Jesus is asking you and me to pray for one another, for the ones whom we're reaching out, that we need the courage to do so, because otherwise we're going to clam up. And you know what? God is gracious. Just like with my wife. Just like what we'll see with Esther. He gives us second chances when we've messed up the first time. To be able to go back and say, I want to share with you what I should have shared with you so long ago. The question is this. Who of you needs courage to share with your spouse, with your mom, with your dad, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter, your co-workers, people that you've met who need to know Jesus because knowing Jesus means life and transforms their lives because you have a message of hope and salvation because only in the name of Jesus is their salvation. Only. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And it's not about their reaction or how they're going to receive it. It's about you being faithful to the calling God is giving you. And I know it's hard. And I know the pressure is there. And I know things are harder with coronavirus. God already knows this. And there should be some great comfort that he's entrusted you as a believer in Christ to live during this time. Because he knew you were going to be here. Right now, in this place, with the message of Christ in your heart, to be able to share to a world that desperately needs him. You, not somebody else. You, you're right where you're supposed to be. In your job, in your family. In this state, in this city, 
around these people, in this culture, you name it, no matter how hard it is, you are uniquely equipped because the God of the universe knew that you were going to be born in your family, living in this place, in this time, to entrust you with the message of Christ that you have accepted to go out and make disciples of all nations that starts all around you. And you're uniquely equipped because he's giving you his Holy Spirit to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ and depend upon the body of believers to pray for you. Pray for me. I'm going to share with such and such a person. Pray for me. I need to share with such and such a person. But you know what? It's a little scary right now. Pray for me because I need to reach out to this person. Right now, our mission is still the same. No matter the circumstances of our country or our city, or our family life, or our friendships, is to go out and make disciples. And we don't know how they're going to react, but we've been entrusted by God. And we need to pray for one another, or we'll never have the courage to be able to do it. So i got a unique challenge for you today in the midst of all of this. I want you all to stand with me. Sharing Jesus is not easy to a world that doesn't want to know him. We have a message that will transform the lives of everyone around us if they accept Christ. It will change their life. It will save their life and change the trajectory of their lives forever. Forever. We're not promised safety. We're not promised comfort but we are promised that he'll be with us and that he's uniquely equipped us with his Holy Spirit. That when we're pressed at that moment in time and given that opportunity where it's placed right in front of us, that we'll be given words. It doesn't mean they'll receive them, but we'll be able to stand as a witness so that we might make disciples of all nations. But like the disciples, it's not an easy thing to be rejected by the culture around us our friends or family or anybody else because we want to stand for Jesus. And so what they did is they prayed. Lord, you've heard their threats. You know what's going on. You know how badly this can go, but you know what? Give us courage that we can share Christ. And God answered that prayer, became bold and fearless not their characteristics. We've already read about them, we know how often they failed. But because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the trust in God and the pray for one another in the midst of all of that, they were able to boldly do what they could never do on their own because of Christ. And so my question is simple for you. If I could have everybody just bow your heads, close your eyes, nobody looking. How many of you need that boldness to share with family, with friends, co-workers. You don't have it in yourself. You know you don't. You've been struggling with it. You've been avoiding it. You've been hiding that you're a Christian or disguising it or changing the subject whenever it comes up. How many of you know somebody you need to share with and you haven't yet and you know you need to? My prayer for you today is this. Before you leave, We have prayer request cards in the back. I would love for every one of you, if there's somebody on your mind and heart that you need to pray for, who needs the the good news of Jesus Christ, and you need the courage to be able to talk to them about it, I would love for you to just write your name on those prayer requests and write the people whom you would like other people praying for you to pray for. Our elders will come together and we'll pray for those things. You know why? Because we want to see the kingdom grow. We want to see God use you to fulfill the great commission because God is in you. And I want to encourage you today, that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the one that's going to testify on your behalf for him and his kingdom. It won't be you. Jesus said that. It won't be you. Do you trust those words coming out of your mouth to be his, to glorify Christ? No matter what happens, whether it's received well or whether it's not received well, do you trust God that he wants to fulfill 
the Great Commission through you to your family, to your friends, to your co-workers? And will you stand in the gap in prayer so that you might have the courage to do so, not of your own strength, only of his, not of your own words, only of his, that he might do what he will to be a witness so that they might receive salvation in the name above all names, the only name for which salvation is given, the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Is that you? Don't leave today without letting us pray for you. Don't leave today without writing those things down so that you will be empowered in the spirit of God and be reminded that you are not alone, that he's always with you in this. God, I want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for the reminders of Esther and of Nehemiah and of Ezra that show us that just like them, we are born when we're supposed to be born during this time to be witness for you. And you knew this. And you have uniquely equipped us with your Holy Spirit to be able to share Christ to the people who are around us. God, give your people great boldness. There's a lot of people that are on our mind and hearts, and it's easy for us to be quiet when we should be louder. And Lord, I know that there are times where every single one of us have missed those opportunities that you've laid right in our laps, dear Heavenly Father, but you are gracious that you would give us those again, Lord. And that just like what we will see with Esther going forward, that we will take advantage of it because we're not relying upon our own strength or our own power, but the power of the Holy Spirit, the prayers of the saints, dear Heavenly Father, to encourage us to do the things that you've called us to do, no matter how hard it may be, no matter how it may be received, because we are convinced that it's only in the name of Jesus by which people can be saved. So help us be bold on his behalf. God, I pray that in the name of Jesus. I pray for the people who are in our minds and hearts right now, that this message has brought to our mind and heart. I pray to Heavenly Father for great boldness for your people to be able to lovingly share Christ to whoever it might be, family, friends, co-workers, dear Heavenly Father, acquaintances, other people that we've just come by. God, that you would help us, Lord, be fearless and trusting you in our fearfulness. We lift it before you. We thank you for Christ. Help us to live for him, Lord knowing it's not easy. But God, it's the only way we're going to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that for our people, for your people, O oh Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.